Today we're going to be dealing with some things that are going to be a little bit more mature in nature. You may want to fasten your seatbelts because we are going to bring some instruction from the Word of God today that I trust will be very challenging to you. And I trust that your hearts will be changed and that you'll be formed by what we're about to talk about this morning. But if you're able to remember back to the last time we were together a couple of weeks ago, we began our study of Ephesians chapter 5. But I want to take you back even a little bit further than that, and if you can remember back to the the beginning of chapter 4, you'll recall that as we began chapter 4, we learned that it is rather common in Paul's writings to give instruction from both a positive and a negative model. Do you remember us talking about that? It sounds like this. Paul says, do you see what those people are doing over there? Don't do that. That's the negative side. Rather, I want you to model this behavior, and then he gives the positive model. And and he's done that all through chapter 4. He says, don't do this, rather do this. And so as we get into chapter 5 this morning, we're going to find that Paul flips that a little bit. So now as we get into chapter 5, and after we started examining the first two verses a couple of weeks ago, we noted that he challenged us to be mimites, or to be people who mimic, or people who imitate the character of God. And that was Paul's instruction from the first two verses of chapter 5. So he says that as a pattern of life, we are to walk around, we should conduct ourselves by imitating the character of God. That was his challenge from the first two verses. And when we considered that, we considered that first of all, God is holy. We also considered that God is perfect, so if we were to imitate God's character, then we have to live a pattern of life that is holy and perfect, morally speaking. The problem is none of us can do that, right? Obviously, we are unable to do that. And so God, through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit, empowers the believer to be able to do that. You see, you and I cannot live that kind of a life on our own. We can't just will ourselves to do it. We can't exercise enough self-discipline. We cannot exercise enough restraint that we're able to live that kind of a life. But... Through the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, then as long as we will allow him to guide our decision-making processes, as long as we allow the Holy Spirit to guide our behaviors, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to please God in our lives. We also learned that according to 1 John 4, God is what? God is love, isn't he? So as believers, if we are to imitate the character of God, we must be people who love. And not only are we to be people who love, but we must be people who love, according to verse 2, as Christ has loved us. So if we're going to imitate the character of God, then we must love as Christ loved us. And we developed that to a great extent and so that we understood what that looks like. But I want you to understand that this kind of love is the highest form of love. It's a love that is sacrificial. It's a love that is self-giving. It's a love that puts off, listen, puts off its own desires. It puts off its own passions in favor of those of the object of our love. Do you follow? me? That's the sacrificial love. That's what it does. It's a love that does not say, what's in this relationship for me? It's a love that gives up everything to honor and to bring joy to someone else. That's the difference. It's a huge sacrifice. It's an amazing sacrifice. You see, it has nothing to do with emotion. 
It has nothing to do with how you make me feel. It's an act of the will. It's an act of the will. It's an act of the will to deliberately act to sacrifice myself and to sacrifice my own desires and to give them up so that I can bring joy to you. That's what love is. That's the biblical pattern. So now as we come to verse 3 this morning, we're going to see Paul continue the same pattern that we noted in chapter 4. The only difference is as we get to chapter 5, as Paul has typically done, he said, don't do what those people do do this, and today he's going to reverse that, and he's going to say, do this, not what those people do. Are you following me? I want to make sure that you understand that. This is very important. So what is happening now is Paul is going to begin, and he already did this in verses 1 and 2, with the positive model, and now today we're going to swing over to the negative model, okay? So in the book of Genesis, we read the account of the creation of the universe, And you all know the account. It took God six days to create the cosmos. And in amazing detail, he created everything on earth from the boundaries of the waters. He said, you can go this far and you can go no further to the very most tiniest, the crawling creature, the most detailed of all things. And then in the crowning act of his creation, God made whom? Man, right? So the crowning act of creation was that God made man. And when he finished, God stopped what he was doing in verse 31. He stepped back and he said, wow, this is very good. This is very good. But as you know, any good thing that God creates, Satan desires to pervert. So by the third chapter of the Bible, Satan has already come along And he's deceived God's crowning creation and had him convinced to sin by the third chapter of the Bible. He took this perfect creation and he perverted it. He twisted it and he corrupted it. And in doing that, the entire creation of God from the heart of man that took the image of God to the fruit of the field had all been corrupted. Everything from top to bottom had been corrupted. And because that's what Satan likes to do. That's how Satan works. That's what he likes to do. You see, he likes to take the perfect and the beautiful things of God and he likes to corrupt them. He likes to pervert them. He likes to twist them. He likes to offer an impure form of God's perfect creation so that he can distract people and he can corrupt them into impurity. Satan counterfeits the good things of God. Do you know that God created the home? God created the family unit? Did you know that? You don't have to look very far to see that Satan has perverted that and corrupted that, do you? He tells people that the home is not a mother and a father raising children to honor God. He says the family unit is whatever you make of it. Make it what you want. It's okay. But you see, he's offered a counterfeit, and he's corrupted the family unit, and as a result of that perversion, as a result of that corruption, God's design for the family unit has been changed. And what, well, God's design hasn't been changed, but it has been corrupted. And so now we have more crime, we have more anxiety, we have more depression, we have more brokenness than in any point in history. Did you know that? As a result of the broken family unit. What about religion? Did you know that when God created a worship system, he created this beautiful worship system by which man could worship, he could honor God through the exercising of his faith to obey God's command. And what happened? Satan came along and he perverted that, didn't he? So what happened? 
Well, he offered all forms of false religion. He filled them with foolish man-made rituals and foolish man-made ceremonies, and he corrupted the intent of God that was never God's intent. And so Satan has then taken false teachers who teach abhorrent doctrines, and he's even put them in the true church so that people who are listening to the word of God get a doctrine that has been twisted and corrupted, and he's placed these false teachers to pervert God's original intent, and that's what he has done. And they live among us. He's created thousands of twisted and perverted religious systems to divert man from the one true God and his designed intent for the worship of the one true God. That's what he's done. And we're not surprised by that, are we? Isn't that what he does? We've seen it all through history. So why aren't we surprised? Because Satan corrupts every good thing that God creates. He tries to counterfeit it. He tries to make something that is not right out of it. May I tell you something? Love is no exception to that. I want you to think about that. The love of God, the love of Christ is no exception to that. The love of God, the love of Christ is sacrificial and it serves others. But Satan has twisted it. He has counterfeited it. He has perverted it. He has corrupted God's intent for love. And he has turned it into something that God did not intend. Satan was really successful in his quest to do that. Paul says, love like this. The way that Christ has loved you. Sacrificing everything. Even laying down his very life. You see those people who are over there who don't know God? Don't love like they do. Well, how do they love, Paul? Well, let me show you. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3. This is how they love. Don't love like them. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Very clearly, Paul wants us to understand that the love of this world is a perversion. The love of this world is a corruption of the design of God. This is the opposite of the unselfish. It is the opposite of the sacrificial love of God. And verse 3 tells us that their love is sexually immoral, it is impure, and it is covetous, and it has no place among those who are believers. Did you catch that? That's what Paul says about their love. He says it is not proper, according to verse 3, among the saints. Do you know that the saints are the church? The saints are the believers, and he's saying it is not proper to have that kind of love in the church. It is not proper to have that kind of love among people of your position. People of your privileged position in Jesus Christ before God do not love like the rest of the world does. You love like Christ loved, giving yourself up and sacrificing yourself. Friends, if you are a believer, you should not love like they do. And so I want to take a few minutes And I want to help you understand what this counterfeit love looks like. Can we do that? Xenophon of Athens was a student of the great philosopher Socrates. And as Socrates was teaching, and they called them dialogues, Xenophon recorded a dialogue that Socrates had, and it's called oikonomikos. And so he recorded this dialogue in which Socrates speaks of household management. That's what oikonomikos is. It's household management. That's what that means. So even though... There was a man who was there, and his name was Critobulus, and he was a wealthy friend of Socrates. So this Critobulus was a good friend of Socrates, very wealthy, but Critobulus had a problem. You see, even though he was very wealthy, his expenses were greater than his income. Does anybody else have that problem? Don't raise your hand. 
You see, the problem for Cretabulus wasn't that he didn't have enough money. It wasn't that he did not have enough resource. The problem for Critobulus was that he enjoyed living the high life in which he spent all of his money on parties and different lovers. That was his problem. He spent all of his money on those kinds of things. And Critobulus recognized the problem. But listen, he enjoyed the partying and he enjoyed the sex so much that he couldn't stop. He knew what the problem was. And so Socrates said to him, look, your knowledge of your problem is worthless. Do you know why? Because you refuse to make practical application of your knowledge. You know what the problem is, but you are not taking action on it. You're not doing anything to stop it. You refuse to exercise in krateia. That's another Greek word, and what that means is self-control or self-restraint. So Socrates says to Critobulus, you know what the problem is, but you have no encratea. You have no self-discipline. You have no self-control. You can't restrain yourself. Critobulus loved to party. He loved to party. He loved having the lovers. He loved the sex too much. You see, he couldn't get it under control. He couldn't stop. He enjoyed it way too much. And he had an inability. He was incapable of rising above his passions. You following me? Critobulus was unable to conquer his desires. He was unable to get control of his desires. And because of that, he was losing his entire estate. He was losing everything. He was just throwing it away to partying and sex and everything else. He couldn't get it under control. It was ruining him. Now, this word inkratea is used many times in the New Testament to speak of self-control. You'll see that all through the New Testament. But what was really interesting as I was preparing is that I noted that the ancient Greeks used it most often to refer to sexual self-control. That's how the ancient Greeks used it. It referred to sexual self-control. Now, that's the problem with Cretobulus, isn't it? Do you see that? Can you see what's going on here? He loves partying. He loves sex so much that he's throwing away absolutely everything so that he can obtain it. He has no self-control. He has absolutely no restraint. He wants it, and he's going to have it. Now, this word, enkratea, is the exact opposite of the word that we find here in verse 3. So I tell you that story to help you understand this word. The word that we find here in verse 3 is the word porneia. And it's the word that's translated here sexual immorality. Initially, porneia referred to prostitution, but it came to mean more than that. It came to mean to live licentiously, which simply means to live without any moral restraint. Follow me. To live without any moral restraint with regard to sexual matters. That's porneia. That's licentiousness. To exercise no moral restraint with regard to sexual matters. So you can see how porneia or the lack of sexual restraint is a real problem for critobulus, can't you? And it's the opposite of enkrateia. Now, there's a Greek verb which means to write, and it is the verb graphe. At some point, people took these two words and they put them together, porneia graphe. You follow me? It is the written form of a lack of sexual restraint. Do you want to know what porneia is? What is porneia graphe? What is it? You know what it is. 
It's a lack of sexual restraint. It's a lack of self-control. It's the written form of licentiousness. It's the written form of the lack of moral restraint with regard to sexual matters. That's what it is. And I want you to know that in the U.S. alone, most estimate that it accounts for far more than $14 billion a year. And fully 23% of all websites on the Internet are pornographic. 70% of all men view it at least once a month. 50% of all church pastors view it at least once a month. Parents, there's a 90% chance that your children are messing around with pornography, your male children, by the time they're 18 years old. But when Paul speaks of porneia here, he's not just talking about pornography, which is the written expression of sexual sin. Remember, his point here is to contrast the love of people who don't know God to the sacrificial love of people who do know God, right? That's the point. He wants to bring out this contrast. Listen, do you know that people are desperate to be loved? People want to be loved. People want to feel like they're loved and they seek love all the time. I mean, you see it everywhere. It's in movies, it's in television shows, it's in their music, it's everywhere. And when they do that, when they are so desperate to find love as it's defined by the world, they open themselves up to the counterfeit of Satan. They want it so badly that they open themselves up to this counterfeit of porneia of Satan. Listen. What does the counterfeit look like? I want to help you understand that, okay? This is what it looks like. If the love of God is sacrificial, then the counterfeit love of the world is what? Self-seeking. It is self-absorbed. It is not worried about commitment. It is worried about satisfaction. It is worried about satisfaction. And so what it does is it uses love and it even uses sex as a tool to get from its object whatever can be gained for its own self-satisfaction. That's what it does. And so the lack of self-restraint will manifest itself through things like sleeping around and easy sex. It manifests itself in sex outside of marriage. It manifests itself through adultery. It'll manifest itself through homosexuality. And then, as soon as the object stops providing the satisfaction, we look somewhere else. When you no longer give me the satisfaction that I once found in you, it's time for me to go somewhere else. And I'm going to start the process all over again. That's how it works. Well, this person doesn't really meet my needs anymore. I don't love that person anymore, so I'm just going to go somewhere else. And so it jumps from bed to bed, from one sexual partner to another, because it has absolutely no restraint. It cannot restrain itself. It has no self-control. It's only concerned about what it can get from someone else. It has absolutely no concern about how it may sacrifice to meet the needs of someone else. Do you see that? It only wants what it can get. It does not care about how it gives. It's the opposite of biblical love. That's what Paul is trying to show us here in this passage. He says, you see the love of Christ? Love like that, not like the world. Don't love like the world loves. You see, the love of Christ is concerned about meeting the needs of others. 
the love of Christ is worried about the needs of others. That's not how the world loves. The world is only concerned about filling its own needs. And that's why, friends, as believers, listen to me, you must never develop a romantic relationship with people who do not know God. Don't ever do that. You see, you will not change your mate. You're not going to convert them. They're not going to be different. They may conceal it for a while. She may show some restraint for a little while. But listen to me. Ultimately, this love is the love of the world, and it cannot be found in an ungodly mate. Because God is love, and if you do not know God, you do not have the capacity to love like that. You don't ever get involved with someone who does not know God, romantically speaking, because all they can give to you, all that they can receive from you, is the worldly kind of love. Ultimately, they'll revert back to worldly love. But what we've studied so far is just the word for sexual immorality. There's so much more that we need to talk about, so I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to take you to verse 3 again. Take a look at this. But sexual immorality, so that's what we talked about, porneia. And all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you, okay? So not only is the counterfeit of the world like Critobulus, unwilling to show any self-control, unwilling to show any restraint, it is also, as you see here in verse 3, impure, which means that it is unclean, that it's foul. It's, you see this word used in the Bible a lot of times to talk about something that is spoiled and maggot infested. It's depraved. It's filthy. This word impure refers to immoral thoughts, immoral passions and ideas. And I want you to know that it's all of those things up to and including the immoral action that ultimately harboring those thoughts are going to lead to. Did you hear that? As epidemic as pornography, which is the written form of porneia is, I am convinced that mental sins of porneia are even worse. Do you know why? Because this is the one thing that holds those impure images and thoughts and dreams in its mind and it ruminates on them and it thinks about them and it thinks that it is really clever because no one else in the whole world knows. Your mother doesn't find dirty thoughts under your mattress. Your wife doesn't find dirty thoughts on your computer screen. And so we take them and we hide them and we bury them where no one else can see them. And because no one else can see them, we can pretend they're not there, can't we? We can pretend that it's not there. And so we hold on to these impure images and we ruminate on them and we fantasize about them and we enjoy them so much. And so this kind of sin imagines taking filthy and impure action and it thinks that it is really clever because nobody knows that it's there. Nobody knows that you're already doing it in your heart. And so it imagines a life where all of its desires are fulfilled sexually speaking. It has everything that it wants. And the more that it considers the impurity, the more damage it does to the genuine counterpart. Do you understand? The more that it imagines it, the more damage it does to the real thing. Because here's what happens. The more it imagines a husband or a wife who is better than the one I have, the more it destroys the real relationship. The more it builds up animosity toward the real husband and wife. The more it builds up animosity toward the real thing. And so the more damage it ends up doing. But it's not love. It's fantasy, friends. You cannot attain it. You will never have it. 
It's fantasy. It's only in your mind. You will never get your arms around it. And so people pursue it in their minds, sometimes even leaving, listen, even leaving their existing relationships and even leaving their existing families to attain it. And once they've gotten there, once they think they've attained it, they are so disappointed because it is no better than what they already had. And so they begin to birth a new fantasy in their mind, and then it's somebody else. And off it goes from one place to the next place, wherever it has to go. But listen, the impurity is the thought that just burns within us, that we fuel and we feed until it leads us to sex before marriage. It leads us to sex outside of marriage. It's impure. That's what it is. You feed it. You feed it, and you'll be just like Critobulus, unable to control it. It'll take control of you. It's depraved. It's filled with rottenness. And I want you to know, friends, it is the opposite of love. It's not love. It's fantasy. It is the opposite of love. Godly love exercises control over those desires. Do you see? Godly love exercises self-control. It exercises restraint over those kinds of desires. And it waits until marriage. It keeps it within the marriage bed. That other kind is a counterfeit. It's false. It's a lie. It deceives you and it will ruin you. Verse 3 tells us that the counterfeit love is sexually impure or uncontrolled. It's impure. And there's one more thing that was really interesting is that it's covetous. Did you see that there in verse 3? It's covetous. Have you ever thought about that? What does it mean to be covetous? Does anybody know that? What it means is that you desire to possess something. That's what it means to covet. I desire to possess. So what could counterfeit love possibly desire to possess? What could counterfeit love possibly covet? In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, the final of the Ten Commandments tells us that we're not to covet or desire to possess any of our neighbor's stuff. Remember that commandment? This is what it says. It says, don't desire your neighbor's house. Don't desire all your neighbor's many herds. Don't desire all of your neighbor's many servants. And then right there, in the middle of all of that instruction, it tells us in chapter 20 and verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Ladies, we could plug in the word husband there. You shall not covet your neighbor's husband. You see, our world encourages us to covet and to desire to possess other people's husbands and other people's wives. Did you know that? Turn on the TV. You'll see sexy ads all over the TV, all over the internet. You're going to see TV shows where people change partners and mates almost as often as they change their own socks. They tell young men and women that in order to be sexy or attractive, in order for people to want you, you need to wear revealing and provocative clothing. You need to have toned abs or shredded arms. I don't have that problem. And listen, this is the message. Do you want to know what the message is from all of that? I'm sexy, and you should want me. And so people look at other people's husbands and wives desire to possess them, imagining what it would be like to live in a dream world with that man. You see, my husband, he doesn't treat me that nicely. My husband doesn't act like that. My husband doesn't treat me as nicely as that husband treats his wife. My wife isn't as beautiful as she is. It's not love, friends. It's a fraud. It's counterfeit. It's phony. There's no sacrifice there. There's no love there. 
It's all self-pleasure. It's all self-satisfaction. It's doing what I can to pleasure myself. And so we covet them. We want them. And we imagine what we would do if we could actually possess them. It's not godly. It's immoral. It's not godly. It's impure. It's not real. Let me show you a couple more characteristics of counterfeit love. Take a look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So filthy and foolish talk and crude joking all characterize the counterfeit love of those people who do not know God. Listen, this is not the love of God's character. This is not the kind of love that characterizes God, and it's not the kind of talk that you should be engaged in. Do you see this? This is the opposite of the love of God. You should not even be engaged in this kind of talk. And when he talks about filthy talk, he's referring to general obscenity. Stay with me. This is super important. It's talk that is disgraceful, you see? And then there's foolish talk, which I found really interesting. It's the word morologia. comes from the word moros, which is where we get our word moron, and the word lego, which means to talk. Put them together. Paul says, don't talk like a bunch of morons. Don't talk like a stupid. Don't talk like an idiot. Don't talk like those people. That's foolish talk. It's stupid talk. It's obscene talk. It's morose. Don't talk like a moron. Don't talk like you're stupid. Don't talk like you're mentally deficient. Don't talk like somebody who does not have intellect suiting people of your position. It's the kind of talk that you hear when people have had too much to drink and they begin to develop the gutter mouth and it has absolutely no point in its conversation but to be as filthy as it possibly can. That's his point. That's talking like a moron. Friends, I say this in great love. (laughs) people of our position should not talk like a bunch of morons. Okay? Carry that with you. I want to take you to the next one. Paul has one more that I want to share with you. It's the opposite of moron talk. This is the opposite of moron talk. It's called crude joking. It's eutrepalia. That's the word, eutrepalia. So it's the opposite of talking like a moron. So what is the opposite of talking like a moron? Well, this is somebody who is really, really witty. This is somebody who is really, really smart. And they're able to take anything that happens and they're able to turn it into a sex joke. You know those people? You know those people? Everything can be a reference to sex. We can take any conversation, we can take anything that happens, and we can turn it into some sort of reference to sex. It's the, it's the stand-up comedian who is so clever, he's so smart that he can take any comment and he can find a way to charge it with sexual innuendo. That's that kind of talk. He's just so smart, isn't he? In fact, the Bible tells us that all of this stuff is out of place for people who know God. And not only does Paul say it's out of place for people who know God, he says that you are not to laugh at it. He says, not only are you to not laugh at it, you are to stay as far away from it as you possibly can. In fact, you're to stay so far away from it that it's not even mentioned once among you. 
That's his instruction, verse 3. Don't even let it be mentioned among you. Stay completely away from that. Listen, when talk like this comes up, you should run away, friends. When talk like that comes up, you need to get out of there. And when your children begin to laugh of that kind of thing, you need to correct it. You need to correct it immediately. You need to take action on it sternly. You need to move swiftly on it. And you need to say, we do not laugh at that kind of humor that is morose, that is filthy, that that is dirty, it's impure, and it's moronic. Run away from that. Do you know why? Can I show you why? I want to take you to verse 5. And I want you to just follow along with me as the verse is up on the screen, and you're going to see why here. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you, with empty words, for because of things like these, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not even associate with them. I want you to know that I've prayed long and hard about this, and I want to share this with you with as much love and with as much compassion as I possibly can. I want you to know that I don't speak from a heart of judgment and I don't speak from a heart of condemnation. But I want you to understand what this portion of the Word of God teaches about the counterfeit that is the world's system of love. People who live a pattern of sexual impurity, people who lack sexual self-control, people who lack sexual restraint, people who are sleeping around, people who are practicing sex outside of marriage, people who are practicing adultery, People who are practicing homosexuality. People who as a pattern have sexually impure and rotten thought lives. People who are lusting after and desiring to possess other people's husbands and wives. People who make a practice of participating in and laughing at gutter moron talk. People who participate in and laugh at the clever, witty joking that is filled with sexual innuendo. Listen to me. According to Paul's instruction in Ephesians 5, 5 through 7, that you just read, you can be sure that they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. If, and this will happen, if they claim otherwise, it's because they're deceived and they don't know. But the truth is here. That's what the Bible says. This is not me developing this, this is me reading to you what the scripture says. They're living in disobedience, and the wrath of God is coming upon them. And you know what Paul says? Do not associate with those kind of people. Do you know why? Because you, if you're involved with people who do those kinds of things, if you're involved in laughing at those kind of jokes, I've got news for you. You're not lifting those people up. Those people are pulling you down. So it's a matter of your own spiritual self-preservation. Do not associate with people like that. Because eventually, you could be the strongest Christian in the world, but if you continue to hang around with gutter talk, you continue to fantasize, you continue to hang around with people who sleep around, eventually it's going to pull you down and you are going to fall into the same type of sin that those people fall into. Do not associate with those people. We're running a little bit late, but I want to give you some practical steps to help you avoid falling into this trap, if I can do that, okay? First, if for whatever reason 
you're a believer and you're not married, make sure that you do not, under any circumstances, partner with someone who is not a believer and who is at least as spiritually strong as you are. Don't do that. Because those people who do not know God cannot possibly imitate His character through the power of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit does not live in them. You see? The only love that they can offer is a counterfeit love. That's all they can give you. Yes, they'll be able to do some very wonderful things. They might be able to do some very generous and remarkably selfless things from time to time but they will not be able to give to you the sacrificial love of Christ. And like I said before, they will not be able to appreciate the sacrificial love of Christ when it comes from you. Because God is love, and that kind of love comes only from knowing God, and they do not know God. Secondly, repent and ask forgiveness. If you are involved in any of these sexual sins that we've talked about, I want to encourage you, man. Repent and stop doing what you're doing. Stop. If you're practicing the sexual sin of pornography, put it down. If you're constantly fantasizing about someone else's husband or wife in your own mind, turn away from that. Stop doing that. Thirdly, give thanks. Ephesians 5.4 says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. But what? But instead, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Do you know why that is? Thanksgiving is an expression of selflessness. Did you know that? I think that if I could go back and make a stronger point to my kids to do anything, I think a heart of thankfulness would be the one. It is so important that we develop a heart of thanksgiving because it is a true expression of unselfishness. People do not give thanks when they feel like they've been shortchanged. People do not give thanks when they feel like they're deserving more than they already have. People do not give thanks when they feel like their current husband or wife is a burden to them. And the person who's filled with the love of Christ focuses on the needs of others. You get that? It focuses on the needs of others. And so if he receives anything from anyone, he sees it as something that's undeserved. I didn't deserve that. The person who's filled with the love of Christ is thankful because the life of Christ truly is satisfying. Beth and I talk often about how living the life of Christ preserves, it preserves your life from the sorrow It preserves your life from the sadness that are going to be found in living a selfishly motivated life of the world's love. It just does. Exercising godly principles and adhering to godly principles in your life preserves you from all the trouble that the world would offer. Fourthly, spend time in the Word of God. Jesus told His disciples in John 15, you are already clean because of what? Because of the Word that I have spoken to you. Filling your mind with the Word of God has a cleansing. It has a cathartic effect on your mind. And as you fill your mind with the Word of God, the impure thoughts of counterfeit love will begin to be diminished. And I would challenge you that anyone who fills their minds with the pornea of the world is someone who probably is not filling their minds with the Word of God. Finally, if you have an addiction to some form of sexual sin, get help. Find a godly counselor who uses the Word of God as a basis of his counsel and get engaged with him. Don't be like Critobulus, 
Don't refuse to take action on your knowledge until you have been destroyed. Don't wait. Proverb 19.20 tells us that we are to listen to the advice and we are to accept instruction from other godly people that we may gain wisdom in the future. Do you get that? We receive their instruction. So friends, if you feel like the Holy Spirit is challenging you this morning to correct some form of counterfeit love in your life, I want to ask that you don't delay, don't wait. Take action on it now. Don't let it grow. Don't let it germinate. Don't let it fester. It's not my goal to be condemning this morning, but I have to be faithful to the instruction of the Word of God, and it teaches that if you're involved in this kind of sin, you do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Do you understand the significance of that? If you're involved in this kind of sin, friends, what that means, if you're involved in this kind of sin, you are not going to heaven. And if you believe otherwise, very clearly the Word teaches that you have been deceived. Those are the people who in the last day will be saying, Lord, Lord, what about me? Didn't I do all of these great things? He's going to say, I never knew you from the very beginning. And this is one way we identify them. This is one way that we know. And whether you and I know or not, I want you to understand that God knows. The Holy Spirit knows. He searches your heart. Don't wait. I encourage you, if that's you, not to play around with it. If you have sexual sin in your life, don't toy with it. Don't tease it. Don't play with it. Don't joke about it. It's going to destroy you if you hang on to it. And so I want to encourage you to confess it. I want to encourage you to repent. And I want to encourage you to seek God's mercy and God's grace. And so I'd like to pray with you this morning. But don't wait. Until it destroys you, take action on your knowledge. Father, I thank You for Your grace and Your mercy, which is greater than all of our sin. I thank You for Your patience. I thank You for Your kindness toward us. And Lord, I pray that if there are people here this morning who are struggling with counterfeit love and sexual sin, that Your Holy Spirit would bring loving conviction to them, that they may have the brokenness of spirit, and at the same time, the boldness to reach out to You for forgiveness and restoration. And Lord, I ask that You'll help everyone in this room this morning to fight the temptation that the enemy would ever put before us to destroy our lives. I pray that, that our hearts and that our minds would be cleansed, would be purified by the power of Your Word. I pray that Your Holy Spirit would guide and instruct our hearts, steering us clear of the impurity of sexual sin. I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom and discernment to notice potential pitfalls and traps before they happen, that we can be steered around them and avoid them. I pray, God, that you would allow your word to lighten our path, that we would not stumble and fall into this temptation of counterfeit love of the enemy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.